Hello and welcome to the British Journal of Sports Medicine podcast. This is the last in our mini-series on the International Olympic Committee's consensus statement on relative energy deficiency in sport, ahead of its publication in September 2023. In this podcast, we're exploring the themes of the prevention and treatment of relative energy deficiency in sport, which is known as REDS. My name is Georgia Carhill, and I'm a junior doctor with an interest in sports medicine. And I'm delighted to be joined by two expert guests to discuss their latest publication, which tackles how we can support our athletes when it comes to REDS. Firstly, we have Monica Tortsteweit, who's a sports scientist specialising in REDS and is based in Norway. And Dr. Kate Ackerman, who's a sports medicine physician, endocrinologist and director of the Female Athlete Programme in Boston at Harvard USA. Hello to you both and thank you for joining. Perhaps you could introduce yourselves to the listeners. Monica. Yes, thank you, Georgia. So I am Monica and I'm born and raised in Norway, where I still live. Uh, I finished my PhD in sports science for almost 20 years ago and have since then worked with research and teaching primarily within sports physiology and uh, related to the female athlete triad and REDS. And in addition, I have also worked as a practitioner related to sports nutrition for athletes participating in a variety of sports. Um, I am currently employed as a professor in sports science at the University of Agder, that's in the southern Norway, uh, and I also have a 20% position at the Norwegian Olympic Training Center, Region South, where I work with elite athletes. So other than that, I am still in my 40s, but not for very long. Um, I have three sons aged between 11 and 18, and I love sport. And I'm Dr. Kate Ackerman. I'm slightly older than Monica. I finished my medical degree over 20 years ago, and then I went on to get a master's in public health and trained in internal medicine, sports medicine, and endocrinology. I'm a former national U.S. rowing team athlete and now the head physician for the U.S. rowing team. Um, I run the female athlete program at Boston Children's Hospital, and I am one of the leaders of the WUSAI Human Performance Alliance, where we focus on really advancing the health and the performance of athletes worldwide. Um, my focus is really on female athletes and relative energy deficiency in sport, both, both clinically and uh, from a research lens. I also have three kids, but they're a little younger than Monica's. Excellent. So it sounds like we're in good hands and we're the best people to discuss red. So let's crack on. Um, tell me, Monica, how did this narrative review study come about and what were the main findings? Yeah, uh, first and foremost, uh, this review paper is a supporting paper to the updated IOC consensus statement on REDS. Uh, and perhaps we should start with a brief definition of REDS. So this is a syndrome caused by exposure to what we call problematic low energy availability, uh, abbreviated LEA. Uh, and problematic refers to prolonged and or severe LEA. And we have quite a lot of evidence that problematic LEA and REDS are common among both male and female athletes at 
different ages and at different performance levels. And we know that it may result in serious health and performance consequences. And therefore, prevention of these conditions is very important. But no publications have detailed a broad and thorough understanding of the prevention of REDS. And that was the reason why we started planning this paper one and a half years ago. Uh, Associate Professor Anna Maline and I made a rough draft of the paper and we discussed possible co-authors and uh, luckily for us, all of them were positive. So uh, briefly in this narrative review, we have addressed REDS primary, secondary and tertiary prevention strategies. And we have also provided best practice guidelines targeting the athlete health and performance team, the athlete entourage and sport organizations. Okay, so can you elaborate a bit more on these three types of prevention for me? Sure. Um, in general, primary prevention aims to prevent the disease from ever occurring. Secondary prevention emphasizes early disease de uh, detection and Tertiary prevention is commonly used synonymously with treatment. And if we then transfer these definitions to the syndrome of REDS and considering that problematic glia is the underlying factor, primary prevention should modify risk factors for problematic glia exposure. Secondary prevention should encourage early identification and management of REDS signs and symptoms. And tertiary prevention should seek to limit the longer-term health and performance consequences of this syndrome. Okay, so let's say we, we're using an 18-year-old female distance runner who's at, risk of, who's at risk of REDS as an example. Monica, how might primary and secondary prevention strategies be applied to this case? Yeah, good question. Um, as problematic LIA is the underlying cause of REDS, primary prevention related to a young runner or any athlete actually, yeah. <laughs> uh, would be to minimize exposure to and reduce behaviors associated with LIA, low energy availability. And we know that LIA can result from intentional dietary restrictions to, for example, reduce body weight or achieve leanness. But LIA can also occur inadvertently from poor nutrition knowledge, uh, from lack of time, food insecurity, low energy density diets, or exercise related changes in appetite. So, one important primary, primary prevention strategy related to, for example, female distance runners would be to focus on education and then education about the importance of adequate energy availability to ensure optimal health and performance. Um, such educational initiatives should target all individuals in the athlete's ecosystem. And in the paper, we have included a table overviewing both risk factors and approaches for primary prevention of REDS. So more information about that is to be found in the paper. 
Um, the next step would be secondary prevention. And this is relevant if the runner shows early red signs or symptoms. And these can be detected using either self-reported screening instruments or health interviews or objective assessment of REDS markers or a combination of these two. And so, Kate, just going over to you, if REDS does indeed develop, what kind of treatment options might we have for our runner? So as Monica said, really tertiary prevention is what we consider clinical treatment, and that's to promote rehabilitation to prevent those either short or long-term severe health consequences. Um, always the underpinning issue is that we want to uh, address the problematic low energy availability. So this could be reversed by achieving increased energy intake, decreasing exercise, energy expenditure, or most often a combination of both. And we can't overemphasize the fact that it really needs to be a multidisciplinary clinical team. So it could include clinicians specializing in sports medicine, sports nutrition, sports psychiatry, sports psychology, exercise phys, endocrinology, gynecology. So it really depends on what all the issues are that the athlete is facing, what are the REDS outcomes. Um, and we really want to make sure that there are a lot of people involved that the athlete trusts because that's going to help ensure that they improve. So if we have a physician involved and they have a good relationship with the physician, sometimes they can get some reinforcement by also having an athletic trainer or somebody on that health team that's more involved at the team level that they might be seeing on a daily basis. We certainly want a sports dietitian who can help with that caloric intake and then if the coach is somebody that is, is open to this and the athlete feels comfortable with the coach, it's great to have the coach on board to be able to help modify the training to make sure that we're getting the athlete that, that nutritional balance back to where they belong and, and they're making those changes in their energy availability. Certainly, this can be a little bit stressful for the athlete, sometimes very stressful on the athlete when they have to take these, these changes in their behaviors. And so that's where we do involve our sports psych team. Um, somebody who's getting into a situation of reds might be very well-intentioned and they might be extremely motivated. And so now we're telling them they need to change their behaviors a bit, and that can be really um, overwhelming for them. So I think it's important to be supportive and have these different tools and these different members of the team to address the energy availability. In the paper, we get into more specifics about what are the REDS outcomes that they might be experiencing. So they might be having um, menstrual dysfunction as a consequence of that low energy availability. And we really want to emphasize that the answer is not to just put the person on a combined oral contraceptive pill. We're not trying to just get their period back by giving them a menstrual bleed that could be from exogenous hormones. We want to make sure that that reproductive dysfunction or that menstrual irregularity is fixed if it's because of low energy availability. So we don't want to mask it with outside hormones. Uh, they might have bone stress injuries and we have to manage that bone stress injury with them. Uh, that is going to be with time and then maybe getting back to more appropriate gait retraining. Uh, there are other tools that we could use if they have low bone density. So it really depends on the issue. And I think the nice thing about the REDS model is we can address all the different 
different impairments. They might not be presenting with mental dysfunction. They might not be presenting with abnormal bone density. It might be some GI issues or a decrease in performance or fatigue. And so we have to address the actual REDS outcomes while we're helping with that low energy availability and tie together for the athlete that this is part of the syndrome. Um, so for example, if they're experiencing iron deficiency, we can put them on an iron supplement while we're trying to improve their overall nutrition. If they're having urinary incontinence, we can help send them to a physical therapist for pelvic floor muscle training. So there's other things that can be supportive as part of that treatment. All right. So we're, we're talking about adult athletes here and our, our athlete in question is, is 18 years old. Based on your paper, how would things change if the athlete was, say, 16 years old? Well, one thing we really want to remember is adolescence is a time of important growth and development. So much of the bone accrual that happens um, in athletes is occurring and in all people is occurring during adolescence. And so we just have a little bit more intention at that age where we want to correct the problem very quickly. We don't want to have somebody get all the way through adolescence while we're slowly addressing this issue. So I would say, if anything, we're a little bit more aggressive when someone's younger because we want to give them the opportunity opportunity to achieve full growth, to achieve full bone mineral accrual. Um, so it's just that much more important that we address it um, somewhat aggressively. So you mentioned self-reporting screening instruments earlier, Monica, but what is the IOC consensus on screening tools which are used to identify at-risk athletes? Yeah, uh, in terms of screening, uh, it is important to note that symptoms to screen for may be several. So we have physical symptoms, such as menstrual dysfunction in females, reduced erectile function in males, or it could be recurrent illnesses and injuries. Or the symptoms may be psychological, such as mood changes, uh, reduced well-being and depression. But symptoms can also be related to an athlete's behavior, such as excessive exercise. It can be frequent non-performance related measurements of body weight or body composition, or it could be disordered eating behavior or eating disorders. And to date, no validated screening instruments includes all of these aspects. So therefore, in terms of screening, a combination of instruments should be used. And in our paper, we have summarized both validated and non-validated questionnaires in two tables. So I refer the listener to look into these tables to find more detailed information regarding screening tools. So, Kate, perhaps you can address the objective measures used. Yes, so there are a lot of different things now that we've been able to add to doing a bit of a workup and assessment to see if people are actually experiencing red. So I think surveys are a great place to start. We also know that a lot of our female athletes may have self-reported symptoms of things like menstrual dysfunction, and those actually can strongly correlate with clinically verified functional hypothalamic amenorrhea or hormonally measured proof that people are having menstrual dysfunction. But there are other biomarkers as well. So for example, low T3, which is one of the thyroid hormones, um, is one of the measures that is correlated with low energy availability in certain cases. Um, doing the DEXA or the dual energy x-ray absorptiometry, the bone density scan, can help us see if somebody has lower bone density than we would anticipate for a weight-bearing athlete. 
Um, then there are signs and symptoms that athletes might be reporting in terms of libido. We know for male athletes, they might have uh, decreased in morning erections. They can have a low testosterone level that is correlated with the fact that they're not fueling adequately. Uh, so there are a lot of different things now that we can be adding in in terms of labs and testing and even on the physical exam where we might see skin changes or we might see that they have orthostatic hypotension. These are all things that the clinician can use to be screening for this. I really like that phrase that was mentioned earlier about the athlete's ecosystem, so meaning the important people who surround them. What exactly is the role of the multidisciplinary team in applying prevention strategies and which types of people might you be expected to be involved? Yeah, actually, the target groups for prevention of REDS should include all individuals, as you say, in the athlete's ecosystem. And more specifically, what we need is that, uh, or what we mean is that we have the athlete health and performance team. So that can be physicians, physiotherapists, dietitians, psychologists, and physiolo uh, physiologists. Um, we also have the athlete entourage, which uh, can include coaches, parents, and managers. And in addition, we have sport organizations. And together, these groups may have different roles in applying prevention strategies. And in the paper, we have summarized guidelines for prevention of REDS, and then we target all these different groups. So Kate, from this paper that you've produced, what do you think are the key points for clinicians working with athletes to focus on with regard to REDS? Well, I think the, the nice thing that we've been learning over time is that more and more people need to be aware of REDS and there's so many opportunities to be discussing it and looking out for it. So it can be from the clinical standpoint for physicians to get more aware of all of the different REDS outcomes that can occur from low energy availability, certainly to emphasize that this can happen in athletes and there's a higher risk in female athletes in leanness sports um, and judge sports, but this can happen in male athletes. This can happen in heavyweight rowers. This can happen in, in uh, American football players. It can happen in all sorts of populations. And so we need to be talking about it more and people working closely with athletes need to be screening it. Um, one of the other screening tools that combines a lot of this is the Reds Cat 2, which I know you'll be talking about on another on another podcast. Um, but it really brings to attention all the different signs that people can be looking out for. There are some people in the athlete entourage that really have access to the athlete on a daily basis where they can be looking for these signs. And so whether it's the medical team, the athletic trainer, the coach, the sports dietitian, the sports psychologist, all of these people can be having more and more um, um, approaches to this and be having their eyes looking out for it. So I think the key point is for all clinicians to get more versed about the different outcomes of REDS so that they're looking for those signs and symptoms. Brilliant. You make, make some really good points there. Lastly, where can listeners find out more about this paper? Yeah, uh, this prevention paper has recently been accepted for publication in the British Journal of Sports Medicine and will hopefully be available for the listeners in a short time 
together with a consensus statement and a number of other supplementing papers. So I recommend the listeners out there to keep their eyes open for new REDS publications from the British Journal of Sports Medicine. Brilliant stuff. Monica and Kate, thank you both for joining me today. You've made some really great educational points um, that we can all use to minimise the, the burden, um, the health burden of REDS. To our listeners, thank you for tuning in and have a physically active day. Bye.